At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome to the Modern Adventurer podcast, where explorers and adventurers tell their stories. Coming up always like 100k wins it was no visibility we're roped together i i didn't see tarka usually unless it was a break i would just see a rope heading into white and it was just a white box around me i didn't know if i was going up down left right um you felt sick all the time no one could hear you cry which was a bonus because i did a lot of that um but yeah so it was really alien being in this white world when he'd fall down a crevasse because he was usually in the front i would just feel the rope pull me to the floor and I'd just face plant the floor and then I know it's for me to now get him out of the crevasse that was how you knew one was coming uh quite often we'd lay in a tent and hear the avalanche coming down and just look at each other and hope it's not taking us out uh so that was quite stressful I'm John Horsfall and on this weekly podcast we talk to adventurers and explorers from around the world who have made remarkable and daring journeys in recent years from Everest climbers to polar explorers, world record holders, and many more. I hope this podcast sparks ideas and inspires you to explore and go on an adventure of your own. But before we start, if you're enjoying the show, sign up to our monthly newsletter at zebraadventures.com, where I'll show you behind the scenes, I do giveaways, and offering you the opportunity come on an adventure. My next guest is an adventurer and former model. From her life-changing trek along the Great Wall of China to her record-breaking adventure across the Patagonian ice cap, she sat down with me on the podcast to share her journey from model to adventurer. I am delighted to introduce Katie to the show. Hi, thank you very much for having me. Katie, great to have you on and thank you so much. Um, I suppose you're, I came across you back in 2014 and what I loved about your story was how you first got started in adventure. I suppose for people listening, probably the best place to start is with you and about you. Well, um, yeah, absolutely. So my entrance into the world of adventure probably um, is quite different to most. It wasn't something I kind of grew up with. It wasn't something I even desired to do. I didn't have, you know, grand hopes growing up of seeing far fun places or anything like that. Um, I, I was outdoorsy. I um, come from a horse riding background. So I was an event rider for many years of my youth. Um, and, you know, we, we did family walks and things like that, but definitely not, I wouldn't call it adventurous. There's no adventure 
a lineage in my family of any description. Um, but then after I let you, left university, I, um, I was actually working as a model. So again, probably as far removed from the world of adventure as you can get. It was all uh, stilettos and makeup and um, not eating a lot. And then, and then I met a man and he, his chat up line was, did I want to walk to the North Pole with him? Which wasn't one I'd heard before. So uh, <laughs> it was quite interesting. Um, obviously I said no, um, you know, why, why on earth would I want to walk to the North Pole? How on earth could I walk to the North Pole? I was kind of definitely a girl of acrylic nails and things like that. Um, but yeah, this guy who was actually kind of polar explorer, mountaineer, kind of real, real rugged adventurer, um, after a few days, weeks, months, we got on, we became a couple and he still kept kind of going on about this North Pole trip. Um, and eventually he, he just convinced me that, uh, that I was somehow capable. The fact that we were all capable, that the human body is incredible and to not, you know, um, not play down how much it can do. And so I agreed with him that I would walk to the North Pole with him under the condition that perhaps I had a go at something a little easier to kind of dip my toe in the water of this world of adventure that was completely new to me. Um, and he agreed to that. And so, so yeah, so I, I, I had this bucket list, I suppose, if someone said, where in the place in the world did you want to travel? I had this bucket list, like many people do. And I expect the things on it were probably the same as many people. Um, and one of them on there was to, to visit the Great Wall of China. Uh, I knew nothing of it other than it was some a wonder of the world. And therefore, it kind of just came onto this list. Um, so completely naively, stupidly off, kind of off the cuff said, well, why don't we walk the Great Wall of China? That could be my kind of have a go at this adventure world. And the moment I'd said it, he grabbed it, ran with it. Um, and six months later, we were heading off to walk the Great Wall of China, which uh, I didn't know when I suggested it, but we were going to be the first people to walk the entire length of it from the most uh, westerly terminus to the most easterly terminus. Um, it was four and a half thousand kilometers. It was six months long. I went from plus 35 degrees to minus 35 degrees. Yeah, it was a hell of an ordeal. And I could have walked to the North Pole five times and back in the duration I walked along the wall. So uh, a bit of an error on my behalf. But um, yeah, that that's how I got into adventure. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, and I suppose with those sort of drastic temperatures, what um, what do you wear in terms of or take with you on a sort of trip like that? So for China, um, I well, I had no experience whatsoever. So um, Taka, my partner, who I was doing it with, um, had a lot of experience of mountaineering and polar trips. So I just went with whatever he told me. But because of his kind of polar trip experience, we actually wore um, a kind of salopette and smock outfit that you would wear in the Arctic. So designed for kind of temperatures of minus 40, um, that he actually, um, he actually made mine. I was still, uh, very much stuck in a girly, girly world and I wanted it to be pink. And the only ones that were on the market that you could buy for polar trips were like black or navy blue. <laughs> um, and yeah, oh God, it's, it's laughable now thinking about it. But yeah, I didn't want to spend the next six months of my life in the one outfit I was going to have um, in, in black. 
So um, he bought all the fabrics and um, copied the design of the one he bought for himself. And yeah, he made it in uh, bright fuchsia pink from head to toe. Um, and that that's uh, obviously layering underneath had kind of merino wool base layers and um, uh, some mid layers, um, kind of fleece mid layers. But yeah, it's a, it's a kind of fleece lined smock jacket and salopettes. And that is all I had for six months, one set of clothes for six months. Yeah. <laughs> It was bad. And I suppose, <laughs> I suppose going, taking six months of this ordeal, as you call it, um, <laughs> how difficult was it to walk the Great Wall of China? Um, at the time, for me, hellishly difficult, hellishly difficult. I cried every single day of the journey. I can't think back of a day where I didn't cry at least once. Um, but don't get me wrong. It was still the best thing I have ever done in my life. It changed my life completely. I, I have nothing but wonderful memories, but if I strip that back and <laughs> really, um, boil down to it, yeah, it was, it was really tough. I was carrying 35 kilos, um, on my back, in my pack, which, um, for somebody who was, uh, working as a model, you know, tracing up and down a catwalk, not coming from an athletic kind of athlete background. Uh, that was, that was pretty hard going on my body. Um, I, my knees, my back, everything suffered greatly. I, I think day six, I was in hospital. Um, so I was doing well. I was definitely cut out for this <laughs> adventure world. Um, yeah, day six, I'd, um, so started, um, in the Gobi Desert in kind of plus 40 degree heat. Middle of nowhere, there is basically a rock that they say was once the start of the Great Wall of China. But if you arrive to it, it really is just a rock completely surrounded by flat desert sands. Um, but the guidebook said, so uh, off we headed and we got a taxi out to this starting point. And um, most people who would go there, well, A, a they'd be Chinese, but B, they'd go in the taxi, they'd get out, they'd stand with the, this big block behind them, they'd have their picture taken and they'd get back in the taxi and head home. So, you know, we couldn't really speak any Chinese. So we got out the taxi and start doing our kit and the taxi man's waiting for us to kind of get back in the taxi. And we're like, no, 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 go, go, you leave us. We're, we're heading off across the, across the country. And, and he wouldn't leave us and then other people gathered and then no one would leave us. And that was just to be left alone to start was a hellish ordeal in its own, own right. It took hours. But eventually they kind of all got in their taxis and headed away. I'm sure they were muttering that, oh, they're going to die. They're going to die. And um, I'm trying, fighting back the tears because all I want to do is get back in that taxi and head back with them. But um, I was trying to be strong. I'm like, no, I'm an adventurer. Here I am at the start. I can do this. Um, and yeah, and obviously trying to hide back the tears. But as soon as the taxis left, the tears started and I headed off into the unknown. And yeah, there wasn't really any water for much of the first month. So when we did find water, um, you know, we tried to filter it and things like that. But somewhere along the line in those first few days, I got contaminated water and got gastroenteritis um, incredibly badly uh, to the point that um, when Tarka left me to go and get help, I was unconscious um, and he just had to make a makeshift shelter for me and head off back into the desert um, to try and find some form of help, which came in a a bus which he kind of stood in front of on this dirt road which could have gone around him but he was waving his arms frantically and um yeah he got in there again couldn't speak the language tried to try and basically sign language to explain that they needed to drive through the desert through the sands to find me eventually they did 
and then it was like military fashion. I and the, everything was whipped up, put in the put in the coach, and off we went to the nearest hospital, where I spent three days on a drip. <laughs> my mum, obviously, back in England at this point, is also having a nervous breakdown, thinking my little girl should come home. Um, yeah, that's just the first week, so it was it was hard. Um, I went often. We often went maybe three days without food. Food came and went in, it was all, all or nothing. Um, a lot of the food didn't agree with me, so I was ill a lot of the time. It was all very, very spicy. Um, and my stomach lining, yeah, struggled with that. It also got very cold to kind of minus 35 for at least three or four months of the journey. So battling with the cold, I'd, you know, going in the freezer to get out the peas <laughs> was, my, was my experience of cold beforehand. So that was, you know... Uh, a whole learning curve. Um, I had compression of the spine, so I was in hospital again with that later on in the trip. Um, and basically, they, the, the doctors said that my, my journey was over, but I, we'd come so far, I didn't want it to be over. So we actually sent back most of our kit so I could carry with a walk with a much lighter pack rather than the 35 kilos. And, um, and then just took the amazing hospitality of the Chinese people. We relied on that from then on because we took, we sent our tent back and everything and just slept, slept in people's houses and stuff like that. They were incredible, the people. So yeah, I mean, every day something new, new came about. Um, the wall isn't just on the map. So most of the time there is no wall at all. I think I only saw a wall for maybe 20% of the journey and maybe only 1% of the journey is the wall that you've got in your mind, the stone structure with all the steps. That's that's a tiny bit. So yeah, wow, wow. What, an, what, <laughs> what a way to start your experience of adventuring. Pennine Way, yeah. that's what I should have gone with. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for uh, the Great Wall of China to sort of say that that was the more relaxed version of the North Pole or the more chilled out adventure to start with. Yeah, I'm, I'm under no illusion that the North Pole wouldn't have necessarily been easier but it would have been one set, one environment, one kind of set of day-to-day -day issues to deal with. As where China, every day, every corner, every turn was something completely unexpected. Um, so for me as a person, I was just having to change and adapt and overcome by the hour. Like it was just so much to take on. It's where I think the North Pole would have been much more a suffer fest, head down, suffer fest, uh, deal with the cold, look after yourself, make, you know, frostbite, that kind of thing. But for a shorter period of time, um, as where China was, yeah, it was quite full on. But now, don't get me wrong, like now if I was to do it again, I probably wouldn't feel it to be quite so hard because I'm a lot more experienced. I think it was just a hell of a first step. <laughs> But it was doable. Yeah, it was doable. <laughs> yeah, quite quite a drastic step from walking down the catwalks to suddenly walking along the Great Wall of China. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> God. And so in terms of, I mean, especially after the first week when you had sort of gone into hospital, what sort of motivated you to sort of keep going? Yeah, that's... Because that's I, I, I would have said a lot of people after a week of sort of jumping into this would have said... Right, I'm done. That's that's nothing for me. Uh, I've tried. I failed. That's the end of it. Yeah. I hated it. Well, that's quite interesting because my I definitely think my motivations of what keeps me moving forward in difficult trips has drastically changed over the years. So what motivated me then in China is very different to now. But in China, um, it was rightly or wrongly, it was very much to prove people wrong. <laughs> 
So I, um, my wonderful friends and family back home, like kind of pretty much had a sweepstake on me. And this was for days. This wasn't for weeks, you know. Um, no one believed for a minute I could do this. I'm, I'm not going to lie. I was pretty, I've been very fortunate growing up. I'm a bit of a daddy's girl, you know. I don't know. I hadn't really been put through the ringer. So I don't think anyone expected much of me. But I made sure that that fueled me, basically. Um, once I'd said I was going to do this, and I could see on everyone's faces, they were like, she hasn't got a hope in hell. That was my motivation. And then on top of that, I also was raising money for the Make-A-Wish Foundation, um, which is um, a wonderful children's charity. And so whenever you were feeling really low, which was most of the time, but whenever I could get to a computer and check the blog and things like that, and you were, it was before kind of social media. So we just had an old fashioned blog and, you know, we'd post maybe once every three weeks or a month and then get some comments. And those comments were just filled with just incredible um, encouragement from, from the families of the Make-A-Wish Foundation and things like that. And I'm like, oh, crikey, what are my problems? They're nothing. And it just put everything back into space perspective you know I chose to be here it was my idea and so you know I had to remind myself that of a lot so they were definitely I would say I was it was very the motivation came very externally um, for that first trip and I don't think it matters what does drive you there is no right or wrong just know what those reasons are and use them to your advantage find out what they are you know some people are intrinsically motivated they will get up rain or shine without anyone in the world knowing what they're doing and they'll go out there and train you know um, I'm not that person <laughs> and I know I know that so I have to use other things to to keep me moving forward yeah so after sort of completing it and going how do you think that expedition sort of changed you oh it's you can't say it without sounding completely corny, but it unequivocally 100% changed my life, that, that journey. And therefore, for me, it will probably always be the best thing I've ever done. Um, I've done amazing adventures since and seen amazing places, but China will always be special because it definitely changed my life. And it, it opened Pandora's box of, into this world of adventure. And even on the plane ride home... Um, Taka and I were planning the next adventure and it has never stopped and it, it is now my life like I can't there isn't I don't sit at home and kind of do normal life and work and and p wait for the next adventure adventure is is entire life so whether I'm on an adventure whether I'm planning an adventure whether I'm project managing and doing logistics for someone else's adventure whether I'm leading people public speaking blogging it doesn't matter every day <laughs> it is part of my world and on the odd day where it isn't part of my world I feel very lost so as much as it wasn't the nat it wasn't perhaps where I naturally envisaged my life to be now I'm in it I, I definitely can't imagine I don't know where I'd be or what I'd do without it so it is me <laughs> yeah so you were planning your next adventure was that the Patagonia ice cap no that wasn't um, that wasn't what I was planning. I can't remember. I think we were planning to go to the North Pole. I think that was always the plan. It never happened, ironically. I've still not actually stood at the North Pole. Um, no, it wasn't Patagonia, but Pat, um, I, I think um, between them, I did various trips um, in the Arctic, did quite a bit in the Arctic. Um, but Patagonia was definitely the next monumental kind of, again life changing in a different way trip it it's um you wouldn't you couldn't pay me enough money to go back 
yeah. <laughs> it was, it, China was incredible and taught me so much. Patagonia taught me so much. Um, and it also taught me when I when to say no. Not every adventure is for me. And I learned that on that trip. <laughs> so what happened? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so, um, so the journey was to be the first people in the world to do a full traverse of the Southern Patagonian ice cap. Um, so it's on the border of Chile and Argentina, and it's you've got Antarctica, Greenland, and then the Southern Patagonian ice cap is the next next biggest ice cap. Um, it's not been mapped. <laughs> it's one of the few places in the world where um, we actually got satellite imaging from NASA to help us plan our route. You know, you can't just go go and order some maps. And you also can't get rescued. You can get rescued from uh, the South Pole. You can get rescued from the North Pole. You can get rescued from the middle of the ocean, but no one's coming to get you on the Southern Patagonian ice cap. If you go on, you have to get yourself off. So it was um, another massive step up in the adventure world for me. Um, so the plan was to ski across it. Uh, Borga Ausland um, and a teammate had done a previous traverse of it, but they'd use kites to, when we were on the flatter sections, they'd use the wind power to, to move them along. And the plan was to do it without kites. So, um, yeah, so it was predominantly skiing, pulling a, a small sled. Uh, but to get onto the ice cap, you've got lots of big uh, glaciers to get on and glaciers to get off. And so, um, carried a backpack with a kid's little sled, a, a little plastic sled for 10 pounds attached to the backpack. And then once I was off on the top, I put my backpack in the sled. So before we'd even left, I mean, like proper polar explorers were looking at our like plan thinking, what are they doing? This, this doesn't look right. Um, so, but it meant that going up on the glaciers when you're crossing a lot of crevasses, normally if you've got a big polar sledge that's like 120 kilos, it takes a lot of effort and setting up pulleys and stuff to get it across and things. Otherwise it will just fall down the crevasses. Whereas with the backpack, although it was 50 kilos, which was as much as my body could absolutely, I mean, my knees were shaking with every step with 50 kilos, but it was going down by the day because most of it was food and fuel. Um, but with the backpack, you could kind of weave your way, uh, trying to avoid falling down too many crevasses. Um, so yeah, so that was kind of the, the plan of the trip. Um, it was also on skis and I wasn't a skier. So that was also another, another thing to uh, get my head around. Um, and it was going well. Um, I think about ooh, halfway into the trip, I got carbon monoxide poisoning um, from cooking in the tent. And I mean, I've cooked in tents. I know, I know technically you're not supposed to cook in tents, but when you're in storms and you're in really cold places, it's what we do. You, you do it in the porch area. Um, you keep door a little bit open and, and it, it's part and parcel of, of um, adventure life, I suppose. But on this instant with a raging storm and 100 kilometer hour winds, they obviously had the door down too much. And uh, I didn't, before I knew it, I had a full seizure, um, a complete dilation, uh, dilation of the eyes, blood coming out my nose and ears and was kind of a goner. Um, and so Taka threw me out into the storm and resuscitated me. And uh, thankfully, I just came back to him screaming my name. Um, so that was good. He gave me 12 hours off to rest and recoup before we we're off again. So uh, that was the first kind of little incident. Um, and then from there on, it just became hourly incidents. Uh, the falling down crevasses became uh, two or three times a day. Um, in the 35 days I was on the ice, I saw the sky three times. 
So we were actually doing this expedition in winter. Uh, Borga did it in summer, but in summer you don't get the, as much snow. So you don't get the snow bridges cross, uh, covering a lot of the crevasses. So you have to go around them all. Whereas in the winter, most of the time, there's enough snow that it'll have a snow bridge and on your skis you can cross without falling in. Um, but the flip side of that is winter is horrific weather. And I mean horrific weather. It was always always like 100k winds. It was no visibility. We're roped together. I I didn't see Tarka usually unless it was a break. I would just see a rope heading into white and it was just a white box around me. I didn't know if I was going up, down, left, right. Um, you felt sick all the time. No one could hear you cry, which was a bonus because I did a lot of that. Um, but yeah, so it was really alien being in this white world. When he'd fall down a crevasse, because he was usually in the front, I would just feel the rope pull me to the floor and I'd just face plant the floor. And then I know it's for me to now get him out of the crevasse. That was how you knew one was coming. Uh, quite often we'd lay in a tent and hear the avalanche coming down and just look at each other and hope it's not taking us out. Uh, so that was quite stressful. But then the main crux of the trip came uh, 30 days into the yeah, 30 days into the trip, we knew it was always going to be the hardest bit of the trip. There was a 400 meter vertical ice wall we had to rappel down with our kit. And for that, we needed good weather. Um, we needed to be able to see see it, see the wall. Um, and so we were in a massive storm at the top of it. We waited five days in this storm on half rations because our to keep the pack even as light as 50 kilos, we had to be really, really stringent with how much food we took and how much fuel we took. So taking up extra days uh, in the in the tent bound, as it were, meant we were on half rations. So um, we would just have one bag of food between us and we'd take one spoonful at a time. And despite being with, you know, the one you love, you analyze the size of the spoonful <laughs> to make sure they're not having any more than you. <laughs> Sharing doesn't seem to go so well when you're that hungry. Um, and yeah, so we're in this tent for uh, five days waiting for the weather to get better. And it just got worse and worse and worse. And eventually the snow was just literally just burying the tent. Um, after like five or six hours, we'd get out of the tent, rope together because there's still crevasses everywhere. You dig out the tent, move it on top of the snow, get back in and, you know, bore yourself with games in the tent, I spy, whatever, <laughs> on your half rations and just keep this process. And then on one of the times went out and just under days of weight from all the snow, um, within an instant, the when moved the tent, the, uh, the poles snapped and sharp edges, 140 kilometer hour winds just shredded the tent. In, in, in seconds. And so, um, yeah, just into survival mode then and there, making some form of shelter with the scraps of tent that we had left, the bits of poles, ski poles and everything else, got inside, got the cooker on, started eating all the food we had because this was like, um, basically you need to eat to think straight. So first thing you do in a crisis, if you can, is eat and then you'll think better. So that's what we did. And um, yeah, basically had a really difficult chat. Didn't believe we'd see the night through. Um, had the discussion of whether you, should we phone our parents and say goodbye or whether it's better they never hear us say goodbye. Um, we decided not to call them. We thought it was better that way. Um, and yeah, kind of just sat waiting, 
waiting to be no more. It was just the most horrific experience of my life. Um, but the next day came, <laughs> we were still there. Marvellous. Um, so yeah, we then kind of tried to make a plan. Obviously, we're still in a still in a storm. There's no way we can go on. There's no way we can go back. So we could go off the sides of the glacier. Um, the ice pack is very long and thin. So our quickest way to rescue is off the sides. Um, we hadn't really studied those, so we didn't know much about it. And as I said, my, our map is just a satellite map, so it was going to be very much working out as we went. And we chose to head towards Argentina. We were actually in Chile, but Argentina looked the best bet. And it took us five more days to get actually off the ice cap and kind of to um, relative safety, which without a tent was, you know, interesting. I got snow blindness, Tarka had frostbite, you know, good old adventure stories. <laughs> Um, and then we eventually got to kind of what looked like normal world. We'd come down this glacier, uh, first people who'd ever been on this glacier. It was, it was incredible. Um, if not terrifying. And eventually we were hoping a boat would come and collect us, um, from the side of the, from the side of the ice, but it was just, I don't know, you've probably seen pictures of in Patagonia where the ice is always falling into the water and there was no way they would kind of get a boat to us. So in the end, um, the military came and got us with a helicopter, um, but they wouldn't have gone and collected us from higher up. We had to be on on uh, kind of sea level for them to do that. And that was sadly the end of our trip. Um, yeah, sadly. I mean, yeah, I struggled. I struggled with the failure of it. Um, there's no getting around that. I still struggle with failure. I'm getting better. I've done it a lot smaller now. <laughs> um, but I definitely, that was the first time that I really hadn't achieved what I'd set out to achieve. And um, it was hard to take, but I mean, gosh, no way in the world we thought either, either of us thought we would be alive. So that, that's, that's good. Thumbs up for that one. <laughs> um, yeah. And now, you know, retrospectively for Tarka, you know, as soon as we'd kind of got to safety and, and were fattening back up and things like that, he was already thinking, how could we have done this differently? Was it just an unfortunate incident? Could we have, could you take two tents? Blah, 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 blah. And I'm, already thinking, no, 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 no. I'm never going back there. Pick a new team, mate. Um, so that one for me, I don't feel any des desire to go and finish what I started. There's not even an ounce of me. I'm, I'm good with, I did, I did all, all I could do there. Um, and it wasn't to be <laughs> coming away with my life will, will be my success story in that one. Yeah. You said that you, when the storm came, you ate, uh, all the food or as much as the food just, as possible just like as much food before my stomach was like okay we've eaten thank goodness for that because for five days I'd eaten you know a few spoonfuls of food each day so to try and make decisions on that uh, yeah um, I mean to be honest there weren't man many decisions to make we weren't we didn't have a lot of options but you just need to be thinking as clearly clearly as you can so I think we had kind of two or three um freeze-dried meals each in a row which you know you wouldn't do if the trip was going on, um, but we knew there was no going on. So, yeah. God, what a story! <laughs> yeah, you, you couldn't you couldn't pay me enough money to do it again. No one's done tried since. Um, it's there. It's there to be done, and it's definitely um, our method was working. I feel confident we had the right kit, we had the right strategy. Um, you know luck of the draw with a weather window like like mountaineering really you need a good weather window to summit and, and we didn't have that and it all went horribly wrong but um i don't feel we were um 
underprepared or inexperienced. It was just, it, it's just, we were, we were thrown what Patagonia I think would throw at anyone. Um, I, I read a little before we went and you're trying to get sponsors and you, you know, when I plan an expedition, I plan it as if someone else is doing it. I never put myself there. Um, otherwise I probably wouldn't want to go. <laughs> so I do it kind of naivety is bliss is my method. Um, so I was planning it and, you know, you're creating exciting sponsorship proposals to try and get people in, interested in the trip. And I used this kind of, um, quote that somebody who'd done a trip, um, over there had used, and that was, uh, I'll kind of probably not remember it now, but I think it's, um, the wind in, in Patagonia, the wind knocks you to the knee, to your knees and the snow buries you alive. And I used it everywhere thinking, oh, that sounds great. That sounds really, you know, dramatic. I'm like, nope, that is exactly what it did. <laughs> it completely threw us to our knees and buried us alive. So, uh, I wasn't lying, but I hadn't taken it literally. <laughs> and so, uh, after those two, um, expeditions you were still hooked you were still ready to, to face more um yeah yeah i can't even remember the order of things um oh gosh actually yeah what i planned next was even worse but <laughs> thankfully thankfully it never uh, never happens yeah so off the back of that trip i think the next big trip was to do a circumnavigation of the globe from the North Pole down to the South Pole using only human powered. Um, the two kind of bits I wasn't looking forward to was ocean rowing, um, Drake's Passage from the tip of South America to Antarctica. I'm not good with water. That one wasn't floating my boat. And um, wintering, we'd have had to winter on the Antarctic Peninsula to then be there at the right time to have made it from the coast on that side. So that was a big project. Um, it was actually a three million pound sponsorship project. It was um, got got right down to the uh, signing of the deal day um, when all the banks crashed. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we were being sponsored by a very big bank. So that that kind of was a lot of time and effort, sweat and tears into putting something together that just fell away in a day and that kind of changed my outlook again into adventure up until then it was kind of quite sponsorship press media led not led but it it just happened that way I think because Tarka had done trips that were kind of polar and mountaineering and that was the norm that was the way it was and so our trips became that and I'm not saying it's wrong and I'm not saying it's something I'm I'm definitely not into but I I after that kind of heartache of losing that sponsorship deal after all the money and time, we definitely took a bit of a turning and just were like, you know what, we'll just raise the amount of pennies we can raise and we'll just go on an adventure. It doesn't have to be big and, and um, life-threatening. It doesn't have to be for the media. It doesn't have to be for sponsors. Let's just go and, and enjoy adventuring. And that has by and large been more the route I've, I've stuck down so after that kind of big trip fell through I think we just got on um yeah I think we got on a plane yeah that was that trip we went to Africa we went to North Africa to Djibouti um on the edge of the Sahara Desert and we bought a couple of um very very rusty old bikes they must have been 40 or 50 years old no gears no brakes just whatever I hadn't thought through the fact that there weren't going to be many bikes in the Sahara Desert, <laughs> but there really aren't many bikes in the Sahara Desert. But some locals found us some, um, yeah, really, really rubbish old bikes. But um, And yeah, headed down towards South Africa and just 
taking it all in as we went. Uh, we did a lot, lot of walking because the bikes were pretty rubbish. Um, went through some trainers because that's how we stopped because we had no brakes. So we just put our feet on the road. Um, but yeah, so complete polar opposite to what we'd been doing, but just went purely for adventure's sake. Yeah. And how did they sort of that compare when you have that sort of freedom to pursue an adventure of your own accord? They both have their place and I love both. And there are certain trips where I've had a wonderful time and I, but it's almost been in too enjoyable. <laughs> um, I've seen wonderful things. I've experienced wonderful things, but I've become slightly addicted to um, a bit of suffering along the way. So I think when you've got a big trip and people are watching and there's definitely like finite goals involved, whether it's a time frame or a distance you have to get, it gives you, it provides motivation to push through the hard times. Whereas when you just go heading out on adventure and have no desire or need to do a certain distance each day, um, it can become very easy to stop and enjoy the town and, oh, we'll have another day here, which is fantastic and still a wonderful experience. But um, for me personally, I like to be a little bit, have a little bit more, be a bit more driven. So I try and set goals that are a little bit beyond what I think I can do. Whereas Africa was, we just, just went for a cycle. Well, it was quite a long way, but it was still, there was, you know, it didn't matter how long it took us. So yeah, there's a place for both. But I definitely tend to go to the, I think, I think suffering's good. I think it's good for you. I think you learn a lot when you're suffering, when you're pushing beyond your kind of comfort zone. Yeah. Katie, there's uh, five questions which we ask the uh, guests each week. Um, with the first one being on your trips, what's the one item or gadget that you always take? It's not very exciting, but... I love my Nalgene bottle. <laughs> um, but yeah, it doesn't matter whether I'm uh, ski touring, cycling, hiking, running, whatever. A Nalgene for me is like the best £10 you can buy. Um, not only is it, you know, a great sturdy uh, water bottle, but the reason why I love it is it is my hot water bottle. And I feel the cold. I know it sounds like I go to lots of cold places, but I'm a real wuss when it comes to the cold. And I definitely can't sleep if I'm cold. Um, and on these trips, you know, sleep is so, so important that, uh, yeah, I fill up my, um, when I'm doing my cooking, I boil an extra litre of water, put it in the Nalgene, get it in the sleeping bag. And uh, yeah, I don't know where I'd be without it. So simple one, but a good one. <laughs> okay. Uh, what's your favourite adventure or travel book? It's a bit embarrassing, but I'm not really much of a reader. <laughs> I know that sounds awful. Um yeah, I don't read many books. Um, I love maps <laughs> and I love atlases. And when I open a page, to me, there's adventures everywhere. So that's kind of adventurous reading. Um, but no, I, I, I'm more of a, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I like to be multitasking. I can listen to other people's adventures and stories through a podcast while I'm training or even on an adventure myself. Um, so yeah, so I, I, I spend hours doing that. But finding the time to actually sit down and get lost in a book, it, just doesn't happen in my life I'm afraid <laughs> why are adventures important to you they are my life <laughs> I can't really separate an adventure life and a normal life adventure it is my life and without it I have absolutely no idea who I'd be what I'd be where I'd be I just can't I can't picture it at all <laughs> yeah 
Um, do you have a favorite quote or motivational quote? Um, uh, I, lo- I love loads of quotes. Um, I expect you've heard most a million times, but uh, I don't have one. I don't have a quote as such, but what I do do is I write little like um, little words and mottos. So like if I'm on a bike race, so I do a lot of ultra and dis- ultra distance bike racing. So it might be like two weeks on the bike. I will um, print them out and I will tape them to my actual bike handles. <laughs> so when you're like suffering and you're looking down, they're just little words to kind of give you a boost. Um, and, and they're really simple, um, but they work for me. Just simple as things like um, everything passes. Um, so if I know I'm suffering and, you know, it's just enough to read that and know it will go away or to I, I write things like don't um, don't waste energy on things you can't change. That's usually at the weather when, you know, <laughs> I'm swearing at it. Don't don't rise to it. You can't change it. Go with it. Um, HTFU, just, you know, all sorts of just little little snippets. So they're only a couple of words, but having them somewhere where I just look down and glance, that really, really works for me. Um, and that's something I do rather than have a specific quote as such. I think my sister's, which is on the sort of very similar lines, is um, don't wait for the storm to pass, learn to dance in the rain. Yes. So basically, I've taken really good quotes like that and just turned them into like three words to remind me because I'll never be able to remember the quote. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, people listening are always keen to travel and go on these grand adventures. What's the one thing you would recommend them to get started? Um to get started <laughs> I know it sounds ridiculous but so many people go oh my god I love what you do your life looks great well, I'd love to do that I'm like okay go for it then um, I think I think the hardest thing for people is to physically start and I think that's because it's really to easy to not feel ready whether that's to not feel like you've trained enough not feel like you've got enough money not feel like it's the right time but those things I've never ever been ready for any trip I've done and if I waited to be ready, I still would have not have left the house. So I think the simplicity of just starting is absolutely my best advice to anybody. And um, and just to remember that an adventure, I think of it as um, it's an adventure is personal development. So um, I don't know what you'll learn, but you'll learn a hell of a lot along the way. So you're not supposed to know it all before you start. And therefore, get start, learn as you go, train as you go. Um, yeah stop making excuses (laughs) yeah I think that's probably my sort of for people starting the best thing is just go for it and you'll you'll make mistakes but you'll always learn from that yeah and you'll do it better next time absolutely absolutely (laughs) um what are you doing now and how can people follow your adventures in the future um so Right now, like many people, not a lot. <laughs> um, thankfully, uh, at the moment, I very touch wood, we're not in lockdown here in the French Alps where I am, um, although it is looming. So on a day-to-day basis, I am fortunate that I can go outside and do a lot of ski touring um, and snowshoeing and things like that. So I'm actually training for my next set of qualifications, um, my IML guiding qualifications. So that's keeping me occupied. Um, but with regards to kind of adventures and expeditions, oh, who knows? I've got two races in the diary. I'm supposed to be doing the um, Tour Divide bike race, mountain bike race, in which is from Canada to Mexico, uh, four and a half thousand kilometer race. 
was supposed to be in June. I reckon I won't get there this year, um, so maybe next year. And I'm also supposed to be doing the Atlas Mountain Race in Morocco. But again, that's moved from February to October. So yeah, there's not a lot. I've got a lot of adventures planned, <laughs> but who knows which one's coming first. Um, so I just keep planning because I enjoy the planning stages. But um, and a blog. So um, katiejaneendurance.com is where I do my geeky thing. I love kit lists. I love weighing kit and working out the lightest possible, you know, um, pack weights for things. So yeah, I write all about that on my website. And um, other than that, on my Instagram, which is also Katie Jane Endurance. Amazing. Well, Katie, thank you so much for coming on the show today and, you know, telling your stories. I have to say that's incredible to listen. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. Well, thank you. Next time on the Modern Adventurer podcast. In just, you know, in that moment, we were like, right, we have to grab onto the reef. Neither of us, none of us had any reef hooks. So we just grabbed onto the nearest coral that we could find. I would never, ever, ever tell anyone to touch coral in any other situation. Never touch it. But we just grabbed on and the current was so, so strong that my goggles are going and my regs are going and I just start I'm starting to feel that fear you know the visibility's really dropped and it's just it felt like I was being hit by like 70 mile an hour winds and it felt like the longest 10 minutes of my life waiting we were like waiting hopefully to to re reconnect with our dive leader thank you for listening you can watch the podcast on YouTube now and don't forget to sign up for our monthly newsletter at zebraadventures.com. I hope to see you next time for another fascinating tale of adventure. But till then, have a great day and happy adventures.